This is Inside Indie Games. Join us behind the scenes to see what it takes to create a great indie company and to craft the games that people long to play. I was involved in a traditional startup. It kind of followed the startup model where you employ people and you have to scale up. And that's a very valid way of going about business. And it's quite normal. Everyone does that. It's like the normal route. But it's not the only one. I think you can find other business models that suits you as a as a business person, as a creative business person, and also something that kind of suits your your creative output. This is Mal, who helped set up the Biome Collective. That's a cooperative started in 2015 that's made up of creative technologists, artists, academics, and researchers. Mal told me that running the company in this non-traditional manner means they're a lot more stable than a traditional startup. He says it puts them in a position to do projects independent of each other, which gives more creative control, more freedom, and opens the door to a lot more collaborations. But I was interested to find out how they went about balancing this. Can a collection of freelancers be as tightly bound to a company as, say, employees can? How does a company like Biome Collective ensure that its main work actually gets done alongside all of the freelance projects going on? Well, I guess even um, even the work I do for as Biome or for Biome, I am a freelancer still, right? Mm-hmm. But it's a very good question because it's a very tricky balance, right? But I think for us, what we do when it comes to um, people joining the collective is there's a fundamental understanding that this is not a job. This is an umbrella that you're joining and people need to be independent in their own right. So need to people need to really have their own business or then their own research or particular structures in place so they're able to kind of do their own thing, mm-hmm. first and foremost. Because the collaborations, the opportunities within Biome aren't really guaranteed. You know, we as a business, we can't guarantee that because we're kind of, we're going from project to project, right? But the reality is those things, those things are real and they exist. But we kind of expect people to be independent in their own right. So that in that sense, Biome Collective, which is made of its members, all its members are independent and are quite stable in their own right, which helps the collective organization be very stable and independent. Mm-hmm. And uh, opportunities do come by, you know, as as if I were to do a project by myself with the Biome hat, the good, the good of that project reflects good on, on everyone within the collective. So in that sense, it works really well. Does it, you say the company has been very stable which sounds um which is great obviously has there have there ever been any points where there have been tricky times it sounds like the kind of thing where you know you're maybe not getting a guaranteed salary like can you has it always been fine or ever been any hard moments uh, so the 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 company is stable because the the company's purpose is 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 fundamentally quite compact and and small uh it's there to serve as an umbrella so it's very easy for Biome to be stable. You know, it's not it, it it's not employing anyone. So we don't have uh, the monthly outlay in mm. terms of employment, mm. right? Mm. So if there was no work to come into Biome for a year, that that wouldn't really impact Biome Collective, mm. the, the the business structure essentially. Um, but obviously, with, within Biome, there are members who use this, you know, Biome and are freelancers, right? So uh, the onus is then is on the membership to be able to kind of bring in uh, work opportunities, right? And that's a shared responsibility. 
uh, various members, including myself, will, will, will focus a bit more on that because we have the skill set to be able to kind of start new business arrangements and network and uh, get projects kind of kicked off. So uh, some of us within the collective focus on that, which means that other members of the collective can just focus on doing what they love to do, you know, whether it's programming or art or research. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, in, in a sense, it, 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 it has the, the possibility to be tricky, but, we're, but we've kind of purposely built biomes for it to kind of withstand those pressures. Yeah. Does that, does that then transfer the pressure to the individuals though? Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. And that's why um, when anyone wants to join Biome Collective, there's that kind of honest conversation and chat about what it is and what's to be expected. Uh, so actually, you know, everyone who's a member of Biome, if some of some some of these are academics, so they've actually got jobs already, so they're quite busy anyway. But anyone who is primarily a freelancer in their own right, uh, most of them are people who have been freelancing for a while. Um, we actually had a team of graduates join us last year. Um, three very talented graduates from Abertay University focusing on games development, and they've actually started their own micro studio called Bitlium Games. So in a sense, they've they've been able to kind of start a, their own micro studio that's independent of Biome but also within Biome right mm-hmm. so those guys are busy doing that um, so there's various people doing various things and it worked quite, quite well actually excellent do you think it's uh, is that a model that you see around the games industry often well I my inspiration for this model was was seeing um, seeing the model in existence in other parts of the world mm-hmm. and there are collectives that exist or you know worldwide specifically in games now the collective model itself is not a games thing, you know, it goes beyond art movements and all that kind of stuff. So it's it's a pre-existing model that I think works really well for games because of the nature of our business, because it's content-driven and it's so expensive and risky. I think you have to have more fluid and adaptable models. And now the cool thing about a collective is that there's no set way of doing it, you know. Around the world, there are various collectives that do it in different ways. There are collectives of quite me- small to medium-sized studios, for example, right? They form their own collective. There are collectives that focus on programming or art or experimental and the third. So there's a whole range of different collectives worldwide. I think it's a growing movement. There's more of these things happening just due to the nature of, um, broadly speaking, society and how work is, is changing. You know, we all kind of grew up thinking we're going to have a job for life and that's not the reality anymore and mm. we're having to work longer, etc. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It's it's about okay, cool. If, if if the parameters have shifted, well, I have more control now. And how do I make sure I do a job that I love and I'm passionate about, but also pays the bills and helps me to you know be to prosper? Yeah. Do, have you had any pushback from publishers, for example, or funders based on that model? Um, I wouldn't say pushback. I think that's quite a strong way to put it. I think um, most people. Uh, once you go beyond the kind of website or com- initial conversation, once you you tell them what it is, they go, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. You know, it's essentially it's what the film world's been doing for a long time, mm. and you're seeing more of that in the games world. Um, and so most people actually are okay with it uh, once you explain it if you have to, because sometimes people don't quite understand it, which is it's totally cool. It's not really not a normal thing, I guess. Uh, so, so not 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 pushback, more like questions or what what is that? How do you operate? How does that work? Mm-hmm. You know, really important fundamental questions. And for most people, it's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. You know, it, it's quite an appealing model, I think. 
because um, we're not um, the main thing for me is that we're not selling a dream. We're not selling the, oh, we're a particular, you know, we're a company this size. We're going to grow to this much and we're going to make millions in, in year one, two, three, where all that nonsense that most traditional startup models have to follow that avenue. And I'm certainly not interested in that. You know, I think, um, of course, I want to make the millions and make, you know, bigger, more ambitious projects of scale. But I just think that are, there are different ways to get to that point. And having a collective means we can be a lot more experimental, not only in terms of the content we make, but also our business model, you know? So uh, we have our own challenges, absolutely. And how do you, how do you get a, a group of freelancers to, to work together or, and, and to, for the ups and the downs? It's not easy. Uh, we made it work by staying small, by not really advertising for members. It's been word of mouth strictly up to now. Um, and I think because our work is kind of scaling up in a sense, uh, more people are kind of asking us questions, saying, oh, what's this all about? Can I join? Which is interesting for us, yeah. Do you have an example of one of the, the biggest challenges you've had to conquer in case anybody had to, anybody wanted to follow your footsteps? Um, I think, um, I mean, every project has its own challenges and difficulties without a doubt. And I think, um, I'm not sure that's a tricky one. I think... For example, we 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 another recent project was the, the V&A Dundee was was you know, opened up an amazing uh, design museum, brand new, the only V&A outside London, etc. Coming to our city, and so we had the the great honour to be involved in the the opening ceremony. So we did kind of an interactive light show, uh, following a primal scream, um, and that was a great project. It was an amazing project. Uh, but what was challenging in that regard was um, myself and my colleague Tom were the main people on that project. We did most of the work, and you know, but we also represented Biome on that project. So qu- quite often, when we'd go to meetings, people would make the assumption that it was just me and Tom, right? And that myself or Tom are both not programmers, for example. So in that context, they didn't re- people didn't realize that we were there as Biome, which meant that. We were programmers, we were artists, we were video makers. We were a whole range of things that we were were bringing to the table, right? So that's actually, it's an amazing positive in a business sense, in a collaborative sense, but that wasn't very clear to some of our um, collaborators, right? So that was quite tricky and having to explain that. And once people realized it was fine, um, but that was just one, uh, yeah, quite a a fun challenge to have. (laughs) Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> do you think it'll ever change? Do you think you would have to say you reached that scale um, that you mentioned earlier? Will you have to change it from a cooperative to something more traditional, or do you think it could still work at scale? I think um, I think Biome Collective doesn't necessarily need to change too much. I think the membership will change naturally. There'll be a flow of people. Um, and also our creative output will change, which will might lead us in different places and avenues. Um, but I think what we've done is we've created a business structure that allows for other business structure to exist to exist within. So, for example, um, say you know we got you know a size amount of funding for a project like Garden, 
we would set up a, a special purpose vehicle for that project, right? Because maybe for that project, we need, we need, we know that we're going to develop that for a year or maybe two years and maybe a team of 10 or 20 people. Mm. In that instance, we're unlikely, you know, it depends, but we might use a, some freelancers, but we might have to employ some people too, mm. right? Mm. So in that instance, we'll probably set up a, a special purpose vehicle to administer that process. Yeah. And that will be linked to biome collective mm-hmm. loosely linked because you know that it, can, it comes from biome so that biome is able to kind of benefit from its creative output but in a way that doesn't actually put a stop to the creative output yes yeah yeah that makes sense right now you're working on a game called garden can you tell me a bit about what what is garden about yeah of course so um uh, garden is a multi-sensory experience of sorts and essentially it's our, our first uh, foyer into uh, VR development. So uh, with the support of the UK Game Fund um, over a year ago now, actually, well, a year and a half ago, uh, we got a, a grant to enable us, to, to enable us, the team at Biome Collective, to develop a prototype. Um, and it was really interesting. We were very um, keen to start um, exploring virtual reality. Uh, in one sense, as a, as a business move, because there were opportunities to, to fund uh, projects in that space. But also in terms of um, skilling up the team at Biome to kind of explore this area. Because, you know, clearly things are heading in that direction. We realized we wanted to kind of, you know, go in and go in early just so we can skill up. Uh, so Garden is essentially, uh, it's a music game, but it's quite a mindful music game. Uh, so in Garden, you are on a kind of alien planet of sorts. And you're able to collect seeds, luminous seeds, and as you plant them, they make music. Um, and so, as you uh, play the game and explore and, and you know find things out, you are be- beginning to be- become creative in your own right and make music. Um, and I myself, I, I love music as a listener, uh, but I don't have the skill set to actually create my own music. Uh, I never went past that recorder when I was a kid. That was my highlight, you know, as as good as I got. And I was really bad. So um, so thankfully, we're, we're creating an experience with Garden, whereas someone like me, who's terrible at making music, is able to actually make something that sounds pretty good. Uh, so again, the game kind of allows you to be creative, create beautiful sounds. But also on top of that, just have a space where you can chill, be yourself, relax, um, you know, it, it is a game and it's a fundamental course. So there's, you know, there's, there's objectives and there's things to collect and do. And there's narrative to experience and all, you know, kind of, uh, uncover, but you can also just chill and take your time. So we've been able to do that. And, um, the challenge for us working in VR was, um, just how much, uh, time you need to spend to get that right from a design point of view, from a technical, technical mm. point of view it's quite tricky to make sure that people don't feel ill or sick in the VR space. So um, a lot of our development was focused on that. How easy is it for a development team like yourself to get into VR in the first place? Is there quite a big um, you know, barrier to entry? I think uh, VR is quite easy to get into in the sense that uh, from a development point of view, the some of the kit required isn't too expensive. It's still expensive. It's still going to cost you, you know, maybe 500 to a grand or, or maybe 2,000 pounds to get all the kit mm-hmm. necessary. 
but but really that a lot of development will cost a lot of money anyway, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think there are opportunities to uh, release things in VR right now, uh, but it's still a, a limited space. Um, in, in many ways, um, people... Uh, Compare it to the kind of the the iPhone market when the iPhone came in, the kind of smartphone that really blew up that space very quickly. VR has not done that, not yet, because the hardware is not right, not quite right yet, and also it's moving towards uh, AR as well. So at some point, there will be an amazing opportunity for developers where AR, uh, VR are kind of much more closer. The hardware is going to be a lot more affordable to the development, but also most most importantly for the end user. And at that point, um, there's going to be a, a big demand for content. Yeah. Now the trick is to be able to um, scale up in that space early enough so that when there is a large demand, you're able to create something that stands out in in in, in potentially a flooded marketplace. Yeah. Yeah. And a quick, yeah, in yeah. a very short time as exactly, well. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So for us, what Garden has done is is allowed us to scale up in that space early on. So we're still, uh, we're, at the moment, we're, we're, we're speaking to various partners for Garden in particular. But even beyond Garden, we're kind of ready to kind of capitalise in that space. And Garden isn't the only big project the collective have been working on recently. So Spiel, which is a play on the word, the German word Spiel, which means to play and talk, um, was actually a commission by uh, Dundee as a UNESCO City of Design. So Dundee was asked to, to be represented at the London, London Design Biennale. And we were the first city to be asked. It was all countries at that stage. And Dundee was asked and the city then asked us, Biome Collective, to be able to create um, an interactive experience installation of sorts. So we came up with Spiel and Spiel is a is an immersive experience. So again, using the, our learning from Garden, we wanted to create something that was fully immersive. But whereas with Garden and, and all VR content, you need a headset, we were able to create a, an immersive space, a shared immersive space without a headset. Okay. So we were able to use a single projector uh, to project on a kind of a, a domed mirror yeah. to fill an, an, a, a room with a 360 game experience. Yeah. So you walk into a room and you're surrounded by these visuals. And in the center of the room, there are eight, there's a big table with eight buttons, kind of LED buttons that light up. And as you touch the buttons, it kind of, kick, it kind of kicks in the interactions, which are visual and sonic in the space. And each of the eight buttons represented a different uh, emotion or a feeling. And that was because we were, we were responding to the Biennale's uh, theme of emotional states. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So essentially, every button would be a particular emotion, things like maybe anger or joy. And there was a spectrum of feelings. Um, and we created this in particular because working with a number of youth art organizations in the city, such as Hot Chocolate and The Corner, we realize that when it comes to mental health, youth workers tend to be on the front line and you know they deal with all these difficult challenges on a day-in, day-out basis. And one of the biggest challenges to do with mental health is the, is the stigma associated with it and, and also the how you start a conversation about mental health. It's very, very tricky, you know, and we, we all know we all know that, you know, through our own experiences. So we were able to create something that helped individuals express themselves in a shared setting 
but express themselves in, in a way that they were, it, it was easy to express yourself. It was also disconnected from yourself. So, you know, someone can be bashing the ang- anger button and it feels good. It feels like you're getting out, but also it's, you're, you're slightly disconnected from it. So, um, and then what we, what we did was we, we made sure that the, the table, the, the controller was big enough so that I couldn't press all the buttons myself. If I want to press that this button, the one across from me, I need someone else to play along with me. Mm. So encourage social play and social interaction, essentially. Yeah, so yeah. it was a very kind of light touch towards uh, starting a conversation about mental health. Yeah. Um, and for us as game makers, we were able to kind of bring in all the learning we you know we have. It would generate from something like Garden and other projects into this project and. For us uh, as Biome Collective, that's how we stay, you know, busy and alive as a business. Because mm-hmm. it's quite tricky; it's quite, quite challenging um, yeah, yeah. when you're when you're creating content that's uh, interlinked with technology. It's very tricky because um, it's very expensive to make that content. Yes. You know, <laughs> it's very time consuming. You know, and it requires particular expertise. So you need to be able to kind of uh, balance that. Yeah. in a real business environment. So so that kind of work, working for clients, working for external agencies, is keeping you going. It's allowing you the time to develop your own games. How did, So for example, how did Spiel come about? Did you did you go out and chase that work or was that something that came to you? Uh, with Spiel, that's, that's something that came, actually came to us, but it wasn't something out of, out of you know, Blue uh, it was. Uh, it came to us, I think, simply because we we've been working in this space for a number of years. We have an established reputation for creating interesting uh, physical and digital experiences, um, and also uh, we have a good track record of collaboration. So we tend to work very good with, with partners. You know, so we kind of um, bring people along our journey through code design, for example. Um, so for within the, the context of Dundee as a city of, as a UNESCO city of design, there's been a number of uh, design festivals held in the city and we've had various commissions as part of that. And, and part of that was us maybe st- knocking on the door to begin with and being provided with a very, you know, small opportunities and we've, we've responded really well and we've created, I think, quite bespoke, interesting experiences. So do you have any suggestions for other companies out there looking to do more of that kind of work? You know, apply their games experience to maybe something related or, or quite unrelated, actually. How how do they go about trying to find that kind of work? I think um, the first thing is just, to, just yeah, I think we, we're, we're kind of proof that that work exists and those opportunities are out there. So the opportunity is definitely out there. And... I know how, you know, I know from my own experience of starting up, you know, other businesses in the games world, that it's very hard to uh, keep the wheels turning, you know, because we're at the kind of mercy of uh, the marketplace, the mm-hmm. technology, our local environment, etc. Uh, so it's a very challenging area to start a business. Mm-hmm. But on the plus side, it's amazingly creative, right? So you've got to kind of weigh that up. So I think you have to realize that there's opportunity. And once you fully comprehend that, you're able to kind of dedicate enough time and resources to chasing that up. Um, but also the the, import, the basics are making sure that you have a good uh, good branding, a good website. Those fundamentals that sometimes are forgotten within our sector, they're really, really important. Because people coming in from different different worlds they they're drawn in by that level of kind of professionalism and attention to detail 
At what stage did you get the UK Games funding? We got the UK Game Fund. Uh, so I think we applied in 2015 when we started Biome, and towards the end of that year, if I remember correctly. And we didn't actually get it first time trying. Um, and so the year following that, we applied again. And at that time, we'd created a very, very simple prototype, like, you know, a day's worth in terms of prototyping. A day's worth in terms of prototyping. But also, we'd started conversations with various publishers and platform holders. So at that stage, Oculus were interested in the concept, and so were Sony at the time. And so we got some VR uh, development kits, etc. And so we were in a much stronger position than our first application. Uh, so thankfully, in the second time of trying, we, we got the, the funding. And if I remember correctly, that that came in... Uh, the decision was early 2017, 2016-17. So we spent, you know, three to four months in 2017 creating our prototype. And essentially towards the end of 2017, it was ready. And we've been pitching it ever since. Um, and it's gone down really well. It's gone down incredibly well. But at the same time, the VR market has slowed in a sense there's a bit more kind of oh let's wait and see what happens so um we're in a slightly tricky spot of kind of having to wait and see how things kind of turn out uh but the good thing is we're speaking to all the right people who are quite keen on the project mm-hmm. what difference did the fund make to the business well really with, without the uk game fund we would never have been able to dedicate you know three to four months of actual development so there was no way we could have created um, a meaningful experience like we did yeah. um, then to be able to take to publishers mm-hmm. to de-risk the project essentially you know so that was really vital uh, for us to do that um, and especially because we, we worked in VR a kind of you know a new te- technology um, you know most VR content is actually quite awful it's quite janky it's quite terrible because it's really hard to make good experiences in VR. It's incredibly difficult. And certainly we learned that lesson because we had ambitions to focus a lot of our a lot of our prototyping on content and uh, you know adding levels a second and a third. But actually most of the, 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 the energy and resources were spent into the, the controls, you know, how you control the you know your the interactions in the game. So really fundamental basic things but it just it costs a lot more money to do it in VR because it just takes more time. So yeah. without the UK Game Fund supporting us, really, we could never have done that, really. So um, it's it's meant that we we now we've walked away from that process with a very good prototype that has meant that we've started conversations with various you know partners and publishers and platform yeah. holders, which is yeah. great for us. But more so is the fact that we've scaled up in a particular area, uh, which means that we can put that learning into our other our other kind of creative yeah. um, outputs. One reoccurring theme in the series so far has been this discussion around whether or not games makers should specialise in one particular area or instead become all-rounders who can try their hand at anything. I was interested to get Mal's take on this. When there's a, there's a team of 100, 200 people, you need people to specialise in very particular things. Um However, for me, in kind of what I do in terms of kind of indie or experimental games development, I much prefer being multidisciplinary and 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 talking and working with people who have you know are amazing programmers and have a great understanding of you know the maths, the physics involved. 
but have a visual uh, sensibilities, aesthetic sensibilities to go to go along, alongside that. And no one is gonna have everything perfectly, right? So like, I am, I'm not a programmer. I would make a terrible program, but I have, I, I understand the, the fundamentals, which means that I can work with a programmer and we can kind of go, you know, support each other, collaborate. Um, and I think there's a lot more people who are in that space now who are able to um, use uh, programming fundamentals to create amazing visuals and audio experiences. Why do you think that's more common now? Is there a, how are people developing those, you know, that multidisciplinary ability? I think um, opportunity is the main thing. There's opportunity in the sense that the opportunity is there as a starting point in that uh, these tools uh, to to make games, for example, which you know combine visual code, all that kind of stuff, they're becoming a lot more accessible. So the games making process is becoming a lot more accessible, and that's also then kind of um, entered other territories, or you know, kind of uh, in different cultural spaces, art spaces, etc., uh, medical sciences, all that kind of stuff. So it's kind of slowly seeping into other areas, um, and so what, what that's doing is it people who aren't traditionally gamers or play games are realizing that they have the the skill set or the desire to maybe use some of this technology to make interesting, you know, experiences, arts, uh, tools, you know, it could be a variety of things, you know. So more and more people are getting access to the sort of stuff. So thank you, Internet. <laughs> Do you have an example of one of your harder lessons that might help somebody else avoid the same thing? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I, I, I was involved in a traditional startup. Um, so we started a studio many years ago in Dundee and it kind of followed the startup model where you employ people and you have to scale up. And that was a lesson I certainly learned that, you know, that's a very valid way of going about business. And it's quite normal. Everyone does that. It's like the normal route, but it's not the only one. I think you can find other business models and it kind of you need to find the right business model that, that suits you as a, as a business person, as a creative business person also suits your team if you're working in a team and also something that kind of suits um, your your creative output you know, are you making a mobile game that needs monetization well maybe a particular business model suits that or are you do, doing things that are a lot more creative and something like the film models you know maybe better for you so just realize that there are other ways to to start a, bit, a creative business um, and yeah that's worth trying yeah Thanks for listening to the first season of Inside Indie Games. And I've got just one ask for you just now. Find us on Twitter at UK Games Fund and tell us who you want to hear on a future episode. We'll do our best to track them down and bring them on. And if you want to find out more about us too, hop over to UKGamesFund.com. See you in the next episode. <laughs>